When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Should prostitution be legal? Is sex work a job like anything else? Today we're talking about the growing movement to decriminalize prostitution. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So before we get started, we want to thank everyone for our on, your ongoing support of the show. If you want to head over to pantsuitpolitics.com, you can subscribe to our email newsletter where you'll get um, the newest episodes delivered right to your inbox with the show notes. You can also make a donation to the show or become a regular supporter, um, which comes with lots of cool perks like t-shirts and on-show mentions. So if you're interested in supporting our show, please head on over there. So this week in the Pearls, um, it's a little bit of an international view of things to start us off. Sarah, you were interested in this story about how more than 50 U.S. diplomats wrote a letter criticizing the Obama administration's policy in Syria and urging airstrikes uh, to prevent more violence and to uh, try to end the civil war that's been going on there for a very long time. Well, my first thought was... You'll get your wish when Hillary's president, because sister is, I, I can't imagine she would hesitate to use airstrikes. She's much more hawkish than Obama. And I think that that, I think she was supportive of that when she was secretary of state. And I think her and 
um, Anne Marie Slaughter, who's sort of famous for other reasons, doing the work family balance, but who was a huge proponent of um, at least a no-fly zone in a certain degree with um, Syria, was supportive at the time. And I don't know how President Obama's decision not to do that will be judged by history. I completely understand his motivations and his um, decision to not escalate the situation but I think that at this point, the you know the the loss of life and the um, way it is making the region so much less stable, I think these these fifty U.S. diplomats have a point. It's just daunting, isn't it? I, I was thinking about this after our briefcase that we recorded last week, where we were talking about how we are taking out ISIS commanders all the time in the Middle East. And I thought, sort of, so what? Because that region as a whole is just so unstable that you can imagine 50 people lining up to take every one of those spots as soon as someone is taken mm-hmm. out. And that's sort of how I feel about Syria. You get rid of Assad and then what? And that doesn't mean I don't think we shouldn't do it. I just I just don't have any good answers. And I think a, a really interesting thing, I mean, this is certainly more important than politics, but the politics of our foreign policy don't neatly break down along party lines anymore. It's it's really, I, I wonder, especially as the Republican Party kind of implodes, what role does foreign policy have in reshaping these parties? I mean, I don't think Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton could be any farther apart on how they would deal with situations like this. And in the Republican Party, you have sort of an isolationist wing, a very hawkish wing. You could see Hillary Clinton working with John McCain, Lindsey Graham, people like that on matters like this one. So it's, I think it highlights the complexity of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think no matter what happens, somebody's going to go, oh, well, that was the right answer. That fixed it. Like, it's not going to, it's not going to end like that. That's right. And I don't even know that there is right and wrong. It's more Mm -hmm. just judgment calls and what's the role of the United States in the world for what are we willing to sacrifice at this moment? Um, I'm not sure most of us understand the conflict in Syria enough to say, yes, I would send my son or daughter there for this. Right. No, exactly. So the other piece, sad piece of international news we were going to talk about was uh, the British MP Joe Cox, who was um, stabbed and shot and murdered in Britain this week. She was campaigning and she was actually, this is related, she was a apparently a very vocal and passionate advocate for Syrian refugees. Um, they're not sure yet, but I've heard a lot of mention that it, it could, the, the, gunman's sort of ramblings and confessions lead people to think that he was sort of a nationalist and in favor of the Britain of Britain exiting the EU, which they will be voting on this Thursday. Yeah, I saw where he said something about, you know, death to traitors and it seems to be related. It It's tragic to see someone, especially someone so young and who seemingly was so passionate and dedicated to her work. Um, mm have this happen to her. It it also is illustrative, I think, of how distant this Brexit movement is for Americans yeah, and how important it is, really, because Britain has been such an important ally to the United States. I think Britain is such a key to the EU. Yeah. It's really hard to imagine what becomes of the EU if Britain pulls out. 
Yeah, and I haven't looked at any of the polling. I don't know if 538 has any of it, but I don't have enough at stake to argue one side or the other. But I, you know, I know enough to know that if they leave, it would be destabilizing. So I saw just before we started recording in a USA Today uh, report that the movement to stay seems to be slightly ahead of the movement to leave. And in the current polls, the vote is on Thursday. Mm, Okay, well, we'll we'll see what happens. David Cameron had a quote in that article about what an abject, self-inflicted wound to the country this would be. And his comments were, you know, vaguely reminiscent to me of having Donald Trump as one of our major parties nominees in the United (laughs) States. Um, So he clearly thinks that it's important for Great Britain to stay put. But yes, we'll talk more about this. And it, it is really I mean, I can just kind of picture giant dominoes, sort of like the ones you see in that mm-hmm. retirement commercial, mm-hmm. um, if if Britain were to make this change. Absolutely. Well, we have votes coming up in our country as well. The Senate should be voting. What day did you say that they're voting on the it's, gun it's control It's Monday, Monday the 20th. We are recording on Sunday the 19th, and there are four measures set to be considered by the Senate tomorrow. So here is what I was actually thinking about with regards to the shifting gun control um, debate in our country is I've had in the last few weeks seen and, you know, I was a victim of gun violence when I was 16 years old. So I've been engaged in conversations about gun control for a very long time, for the most of my life at this point. And in the last two weeks, I've increasingly seen people call for the repeal of the Second Amendment. Do I think that's probably going to happen? Ever going to happen? No. But what I think it's indicative of is, and to be considered, you know, that NRA just came out and said, you know, they are not going to change a single thing about their gun control, um, their their ideas about gun control, and called on Americans to purchase more guns. I think that at this at a certain point, the NRA and even you know passionate gun advocates have to think like. Am I doing more harm than good by digging my heels in and refusing to budge at all? Am I pushing people who disagree with me into either even more extreme positions as a reaction to my, you know, sort of extreme positions? I just, it's, and this is not like, you know, these are like journalists for the Atlantic and people saying, I think, well, if this is our, you know, we don't, we are left with no choice. We have to call for a repeal of the Second Amendment. And I just think that's so interesting. And I think if the Senate, particularly if the Senate cannot pass this, the most basic of, you know, we can all agree, gun control legislation. I don't know how this debate is going to continue. Well, we should talk about what's uh, being debated so there is the sort of no fly, no buy measure people. And we should, that's imprecise because what I think is actually being considered is a bill to say that if you've been on a terror watch list, you can't purchase weapons. And then there's another measure basically saying if you're on a watch list, there's a three day period that you are delayed in purchasing a gun. And during that period, the government would have to prove that you shouldn't be able to purchase the weapon, which seems to me um, kind of crazy from a public opinion standpoint. But as I think about it constitutionally, that seems designed to survive sort of a strict scrutiny test. So I think it speaks to the author of the legislation's mindset about what would be necessary to overcome decisions like Heller um, of the Supreme Court about the Second Amendment. So those two are up. Um, There is also legislation designed to kind of deal with the mental health issues. 
um, that you know it, it's and then the 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 whole thing of background checks related to gun shows. So these are pretty consensus type measures as gun control goes. Right, these are the things that you pull the general public. You get a lot of support for. I think your point is a good one, but it, that it applies to both sides. Uh, just as the NRA digs its heels in, the idea of calling to repeal the Second Amendment is an extreme that would, will provoke an enormous backlash, too. I think Chris Murphy is, and I guess this segues to my compliment for the other side, I think he has taken a very smart approach to this. I, I read some of his comments from his filibuster, and he talked about how, I, like, I don't know that this will prevent another Orlando or violence in Chicago or what happened in New Haven but I'm going to try. And that's what we're here to do. I, I really liked the moment where he said, why did you ask for this job if you didn't want to confront the big questions and the big problems? Mm, that's good. It, it was really good. It, it, I, I'm just going to read the rest of this this moment from his filibuster because I thought it was so powerful. Nobody denies that this is an epidemic of criminal proportions. Nobody denies that this is happening only in the United States and nowhere else in the industrialized world. Nobody denies the crippling, never-ending grief that comes with a loved one being lost. And yet we do nothing. Yet we just persist this week as if it's business as usual. Why did you sign up for this job if you are not prepared to use it, if you're not mm. prepared to use it to try to solve big problems. I, I think he's just really compelling. And I and I think it's right to go straight to the things that most Americans can agree on. We have so few specifically enumerated rights in this country. And sometimes I especially lose sight of the fact that it's a big deal that our Constitution includes this right. I think I can be dismissive of it because I take the right for granted. And, and we talked about that when we did our first episode on guns. So I like the approach coming from Chris Murphy about this. Like, this is hard. Let's grapple with it as though it's hard. And you know what bothers me about what I've heard a lot recently with regards to how big of a problem this is? You know, I feel like the people who say, you know, this is so big, these people, evil is evil, you'll never stop it. You know, that's not what I heard after 9-11. No one said, oh, terrorists are just evil. What you gonna do? You know, like, that felt insurmountable. That felt huge and scary and big. And we made mistakes, but we didn't stop trying to tackle terrorism. We went to war with the wrong country. We didn't pack up the FBI or Homeland Security and say, ah, never mind. You know, like, we have to keep trying. We have to keep trying. And it's, if... We are, can attack evil on one front, then we can attack evil on another front and keep, if even though it brings up complex constitutional issues, you know, I just, re I'm really frustrated with the sort of that line of reasoning. I think we should struggle with it, but I don't think that we should, you know, it, I just keep thinking and this is so cliche that it, that it almost is misplaced, but the idea of a house divided against itself cannot stand. I think that it is right to engage in serious debate saying we all want to prevent this. We all want to understand our rights and protect our rights. What do we do in the balance? It's the same thing with online privacy to me. How much surveillance do we want our government doing? These are hard questions, but we should all have the respect for other positions and the, the mindfulness that doing nothing is dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Not struggling through these questions, both of them, all of them, there are many, is dangerous. And so let's stop yelling and being mad about it and 
and do what Chris Murphy is trying to do and say, let's vote. Let's put some legislation on the table and debate it and do it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I really just have a, a tremendous amount of respect for him and appreciate the way that he's tackling this issue. Well, for my compliment of the other side, I'm a little late, but there's no way I was going to let this one go. It happened, you know, right after we cor- recorded um, last time, which was the Lieutenant, Utah Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, who um, came and made a public apology to the LGBT community for his role in perpetuating homophobia. And he stood up and he said at a vigil, uh, at a vigil last week in Salt Lake City, a day after the shootings in Orlando, he said, I'm here because yesterday morning 49 Americans were brutally murdered. I'm here because those 49 people were gay. I'm here because it shouldn't matter, but I'm here because it does. Oh, that his entire speech just was wrenching and so good and so vulnerable and amazing. And that's, I think, some of the beauty of 2016, as much as a lot of it is ugly, like to see a Republican lieutenant governor in Utah give that kind of speech. Yeah. That's that's progress. Mm. It's not enough progress, but it's progress. Well, speaking of how tough the news has been, we decided for the suit to s- sort of take a break. I guess I'm not really going to say we're taking a break for from tough things because we're going to be talking about prostitution, but we're going to take a break from the stuff that has been that's in the news right now. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. 
This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Sarah, you sent me this piece from New York Magazine about um, prostitution, and it is really interesting. And and I'm going to just admit up front that my brain is in knots over this. Yeah, it really is. You know, this piece came out and I heard them discussing it on an NPR show. I don't remember if it was the Dying Room show or Fresh Air or something, but it must have been the Dying Room show because it was sort of a panel of people on different sides of this. And... I actually, the reason I'm so interested in this subject, besides being a feminist who takes issues that predominantly affect women very seriously, is in college I wrote a paper um, that was centered really on the difference between sort of the legal and societal ramifications and the differences between prostitutes and strippers and sort of the overlap of um, those two industries. And because I'm a digital pack rat, I still had the paper and looked it up and read it today. (laughs) And I'd always remember talking about in this paper the idea of decriminalization, which they have sort of pioneered in the Netherlands and in Sweden, which is the idea that you... It was really interesting. When I was doing my research, they used decriminalization a little bit differently than they talked about it in... Well, no, they, they clarify. So... This article is based on um, a new position of the Amnesty International, which came out last summer. Um, it's obviously one of the world's most... I'm going to read from the article. Um, the issue made le- news last summer when the Amnesty International, one of the world's most prominent human rights organizations, voted to campaign for the decriminalization of all aspects of sex work from buying to selling. After two years of research and deliberation, it said it had concluded that full decriminalization would better empower and protect sex, work- sex workers. In response, more than 300 human rights organization representatives, writers, activists, and actresses, including Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep, signed a heavily footnoted letter arguing that full decriminalization would lead to an increase of involuntary sex slaves who are mostly women and support a system of gender apartheid in which resourceless females become objects of consumption. These opponents to decriminalization support the Nordic model, which punishes buyers, brothels, pimps, but not the sex workers themselves, a system pioneered by Sweden that has since been adopted in some form in Iceland, Norway, Northern Ireland, and Canada. The idea that is to ultimately end the trade without harming the women who had seen it as its victim by targeting the more powerful economic agents, namely men. So when I wrote this paper back in college, decriminalization of the um, buyers, brothels, and pimps, but not the sex workers themselves is sort of, that was the kind of up-and-coming idea at the time. And only recently has the idea that, like, we should decriminalize everything. Because the big deal when I was reading it was, like, to decriminalize it, you at least take them out from underneath the boot hill of law enforcement, who, because they are in such a precarious position and because they're engaging in, in illegal work, they can't come for help if they're raped or abused or robbed. And so at least if you're decriminalizing um, the sex work itself, you open up areas of law enforcement help to them. 
the idea recently that, you know, supported by Amnesty International to decriminalize all aspects of sex work um, is, is complicated. <laughs> well, it is. This article and other things that I read after reading this article, are the research is just inconclusive. Yeah. So if you, if you make a list of topics that you care about in determining, setting aside your position on the moral question, if you say... Does this uh, decrease the chances of trafficking? How does this affect rape? You know, all of the questions that you might make to say, here are data points that would inform where I come out. It's all inconclusive, which isn't surprising, given that you're trying to study something that is in the shadows. Um, But... But it just makes it infinitely harder. It how how do we know what the effect is going to be, and how do you make good policy when you don't have good data? Well, the first thing I would say is I trust Amnesty International. I sort of trust them as an organization to do their homework, to look at the conflicting pieces, to take all the data points, and to reach a decision that they think is best. The other thing, though, I think is a problem is that it's too big of a question. You know, the universe of prostitution and sex work is massive. Right. From You're talking about everything from children kidnapped and forced into sex slavery all the way to, like, you know, white college-educated ladies in Portland using that money to pay for their master's degree. So I think that's the first problem. It's like we're trying to answer a question, It's way and it's way too big. The universe of what we're trying to fit into our hands and explain is too, is too broad. It's like saying, well, we need to decide whether everything from violent gang members selling heroin to legal um, pot dispensaries in Colorado, if we can find one answer to that question. Well, <laughs> there's a million questions involved in that. But it's really, it's really hard to unpack, though, because it, every thought that I had a- along the way in looking at this issue sort of reinforced my own privilege kind of and and lots of other people's privileges so when you think about you know the woman who's trying to pay for her master's degree and maybe you think okay well you know that's fine right she can take care of herself it's empowering she's unlikely to be in situations that are too dangerous although that's a vast overgeneralization you know but then others would say well like look people in must much less advantaged situations than her you're cutting off their lifeline. It's an economic issue, right? It's an issue of economic privilege. There's a race element that, you know, this article points out at one point that privilege sets the price. Mm. (laughs) You know, it's just, and then there's the, the aspect of LGBT people and how many transgender women, especially are involved in violence due to sex work or it related to sex work. I mean, it's just, I don't know. My brain is just in knots about this because I, I don't know I can get myself to this point of saying, look, state by state, I don't think this is a federal issue in any world. State by state, if you look at the question and conclude that people are grownups and we can't legislate our own morality. And so the fact that I don't like it doesn't mean that it's going to cease to exist and and the idea that perhaps if it's regulated it's safer and all of those things if you can totally get yourself there and I've got to be honest I'm having a really hard time getting myself there even though I think that's probably where I would end up Um, but then I don't know what to do because you're right it's too big of a question but once you start drawing lines I'm not sure how you draw those lines 
um, in a way that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, so, you know, with my, there's a really great article I'll try to find that links the difference between sort of religious sexual ethics and progressive sexual ethics. And if for progressive, what matters is that it's two consenting people. So if you are arguing that there is no consent involved in prostitution, if somebody with is facing economic hardships or, um, exist in a system of patriarchy in which women's bodies are commodified. I get that, but I don't really think there's any scenario in which people are making difficult economic choices in which everyone is capable of this, you know, perfect version of consent. I don't, and what I, I agree with this article, they make this point, and I think this is true. There is an undercurrent of women and women need to be protected. And I have a problem with that because I'm not really sure um, if that's just self, if that's a perpetuating a whole nother problem. Is it really different if a young boy is pressured to use his body to commit violence and kill people as a member of a gang because of societal problems than, you know, a young woman using her body to prostitute herself because of economic and societal pressures. His is arguably more damaging and harmful to other people. So I don't know. I just think there's this undercurrent that we've, that has some real gendered uh, problems to it. And that's why I lean more towards decriminalizing and allowing because the way you deal with problems this big with ethical knots this tight is, for me, a lot of the times, especially when it, you have sort of um, a victimless situation, for the most part, that's a broad statement when you're coming to prostitution, but anyway, um, is you let the individuals decide. Right. And I don't feel comfortable telling another woman that, you know, even with all my reservations about the societal pressures and the, you know, the commodification of female bodies and, you know, I could, I was a women's studies minor, I can write you a novel or a, it was exceptionally long-term paper on these issues, but like, I can't, that's her choice. It's her choice and her choice might be crappy and she might not have all the resources or all the information, but it's her choice and I'd rather her make it and be, um, protected to a certain extent and at least not have to face the illegality of something that is her choice. What do you think is the relationship? And I, I ask this in earnest. I do not have a conclusion. What do you think is the relationship between prostitution and rape culture? If we had, if we said in, you know, 50 states that people can sell their bodies uh, and sell acts. And, and, you know, that's, as I say that, I realize that we say that all the time, right? People, people do sell their bodies for all kinds of things, just not yeah. sex. Yeah. So if exactly. we said, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> why is this different? Why is it different than me selling the physical labor of my body, doing things that are abhorrent to me or degrading to me in other ways? You know, like what if I'm, I don't know, slaughtering dogs at a humane society. I'm using my body for that. That's pretty abhorrent. I would imagine emotionally taxi, but like, why, why is that not stigmatized? 
Well, and I think about professional athletes and how yeah. we talk about their physical condition, like their livestock. So, you know, there there are situations where we're already really uh, disrespecting the human body for economic gain and and certainly selling its capabilities. But so let's say that as a society, if all fifty states, you know, it's legal to purchase sex. What do you think the impact on rape culture is? I don't know if that is. Um, I don't know how that cuts. I just don't. I think I think the the paradox is true. It will probably cut both ways. In some situations, uh, people will be empowered to explore sexuality in different ways and in safer ways and in consensual ways when there is a destigmatization to you know sex work. I think there are a lot of people who explore complicated. Uh, sexual identities and sexual fantasies in safe ways because it's commodified that if left, you know, a thousand years ago in which they had a lot of power over other people below, you know, quote unquote below them, that that wouldn't be happening. So when everybody sort of has power and everybody sits at the table, then we can figure out ways that it's mutually beneficial to all parties to explore these things. So I think that could be a positive thing. And how would you have this, you know, how, how would you in any or would you sort of restrict advertising, for example, related to this? I mean, I think about driving down the road with my young children, you know, what kind of billboards can be, would we be, would we keep this as sort of an adult thing and would we rebrand it in ways that are more family friendly for lack of a better term i mean i'm just trying to think through what does the society look like where this is legal open normal yeah i mean i think that you have to i guess follow the lead of some places that have done it already although nevada as a as this article points out is a terrible example those women are you know ghettoized to a certain extent and where they can go and how often they can like leave these legal brothels they're at. It's really, it's really oppressive. But, um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know if anybody else has noticed this. I mean, you sort of can follow the lead of some sort of like, um, striptease places and pornography places and, you know, sort of sexual, what's the word I want? Accoutrement. (laughs) Shops that sell, you know, whatever your heart desires. I mean, it's weird to me. Like, where I live in Kentucky, I don't see those billboards. But the second I cross over in Illinois, I see them. So I don't, and there must be regulations already that, that you know, some states allow you to op- to op- more openly advertise than other places. So, um, I mean, we just have to figure it out, right? But I don't think I am, you know, I'm a progressive. And I think things in... The light are always better than things in the dark and waiting around for people to act like we want them to doesn't work. And the best way to deal with something you don't like is just to deal with the reality of it, not to wish it away or shame it away or hide it away. It doesn't work like that. It's never worked like that, you know, with sex or with anything else. And for me, with regards to sex work and women, the idea that we're going to come in, protect women as a class as sex workers by punishing people who try to pay them for work there, but not punish them for work they are actively soliciting. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I just doesn't, 
like I said, it, it sort of reeks of this women as the delicate sex, we need to protect them situation. And that's not to say that every sex worker is a fully empowered political being. I'm not stupid. Like, I know that's not the case. But, you know, everybody, I, I don't think it's an accident that everybody in this article feels very differently based on their very personal experience with sex work. Like, he interviews all these sex workers that all feel very, very differently because it's such an individual thing. And that's why I'm more inclined to trust somebody like Amnesty International who was like, okay. We're going to look at the whole picture and make a call. Well, I guess I I would like to see more data on this, and I know that that's difficult to get. I think I lean toward, at the state level, it, it might make the most sense to have it be legal and regulated. However, and, and this is not a governmental solution because, you know, I'm a conservative. Um, I think that it speaks to reading the stories. It speaks to me to another illustration of how really at the community level, we have got to get better at working together. It, like I, I kept thinking about all these women. What would it look like? And and maybe some of them did. What what would it be like if you had a mentor through your entire life, you know, who who talked you through the decision to do this or not do it? And they're right. If it's your decision, great. You you need to make it. But can you make it with some guidance instead of making it in these powerless situations? I I, I saw a really great TED talk at one point about how in I think it was the United Kingdom. There were studies done of several generations of families who were in sort of the social safety net and how the outcomes for those families generation over generation were flat. It, they just never moved. Hmm. And then they compared those families to some families who were not given government assistance, but instead were given mentors and generation over generation, the outcomes improved dramatically. Because the care of a consistent person is more powerful than lots and lots of resources from disparate agencies. Well, why can't, but why can't we do both? No, I think we can. I think, no, no, and no, I think, I, what I, think I mean is like, why can't the government be the source of the mentor? I mean, why, how do you, you know, how, that's a big, that's a big ask for an organization, for an, a nonprofit in particular to do this sort of generational long mentoring program or any really mentoring program. I mean, I just sometimes I think like these problems are so big and if we want to approach them in this comprehensive way, I mean, who else is big enough to do it? Yeah. I've just never seen the government be effective at something like that. And I'll tell you, I, I attended a United Way event this week and some of the biggest companies in our region are coming together to introduce um, 3D printers and bicycle building programs for middle school girls in our region. And the, you know, the idea is let's increase our interest in engineering and math and science. And I believe that in the bicycle program, boys are involved too. But anyway, I, I mentioned this because it was, it was very inspiring. And the biggest piece of inspiration was hearing an executive from one of our local companies that is a, a giant corporation, a global leader in um, lots of industries. But this person was talking about scaling it and making it sustainable and touching more and more children and all of the different ramifications that every aspect of the program has. And, it, and I sat there thinking, 
you know, a government program would be operating on a shoestring budget with someone who has no idea how to scale this. And the contrast was really stark for me. And, and, you know, we're getting, we're kind of veering far afield from the legalization of prostitution. But, but to me, if, if the answer on the government side is legalization and regulation, I can accept that. I would advocate for the community side then having a response to make sure that when people are making that choice, it is a real choice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I'm not saying that community organizations shouldn't be involved, but I, I mean, to me, it's like once you find something that works in a program that works with, you know, prostitution or whatever it is, I don't know. I don't and know what it, but, but then that program lives or dies by who's been elected. Right. And well, what I don't the think political headwinds are. I mean, I, I feel like if you ask a lot of organizations in the state of Kentucky that depend on government funding right now, how stable they're feeling. Oh, God, I don't want to talk about that. You know, so I, I mean, and it's We're not, not that... supposed to be talking about <laughs> the depressing news, especially in our own state. No, that is true. That is a nightmare. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. 
Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I mean, I, I well, to get back to our, our appropriate field, I think that prostitution for me is an important women's issue. And I think for me with women's issues, my instinct is always to trust the women making these decisions and not to think we're going to fix it for all women with this, come on on a white horse and fix it for all women with this solution. And that includes decriminalization. It's not like you can just make it legal and be like, y'all are on your own, have fun. Like <laughs> It's got to be way more than that because like I said, it's just this universe of um, experiences and to sort of try to fit them all into one box and decide we're going to fix it is crazy. Well, that's right. And the other piece of this that I think is really important is, you know, the idea that women who are in violent situations as prostitutes feel that they can't seek the help of the police and dissecting these crimes. And that's a tough situation and an awful one. And one that I think we can't tolerate, even if we decided prostitution continued to be illegal you know, we need a mechanism for women who find themselves in non-consensual situations and men and, you know, any person who finds him or hers or their selves in a non-consensual situation needs to be able to seek the protection of the police. They they just need to. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that's where you get to the, the buyer versus seller distinction. I, I don't know. Well, we didn't fix it. Amnesty International didn't fix it. So I don't think it's fixable. But I think that having conversations about changing attitudes towards these sort of issues is the best first step always. Absolutely. So in moving on into the heels, we're going to talk about a couple of the big pop culture moments happening right now. So, Beth, uh, considering our conversation last week, I'm assuming you do not watch Orange is the New Black. I can't do it. I tried. I really tried. I watched three episodes and I couldn't (laughs) do it. Well, I adore the show. I adore the show first and foremost because you do not get the diversity of female characters any. I don't think if you added up every other television show out there, you would have as many different diverse female characters as you have contained in this one show. And when you pull um, all these diverse, amazing women, black women, Latino women, Asian women, white women, fat women, skinny women, ugly women, pretty women. I mean, it's, it's so amazing. And when you pull them into this system, that sort of the prison system and take them out of the context of which most TV shows are only capable of understanding women, which is usually marriage and, ch- and child rearing. Um, it's just, it's it's such a phenomenally written, wonderful show. 
for anybody um, who's watching it. And so the new season came out, season four on Netflix, and invites the binge watching because it comes all at once. So I started on Friday night and I finished it today. And I'm not going to give any spoilers because Brent specifically asked me not to, but y'all, I am devastated by the church. It was a very dark season. They handled a lot of big issues from Black Lives Matter to, you know, the prison industrial complex. And it just, oh my God, I can't. I mean, I really was, my husband and I sat there weeping. I was completely devastated. For the first time, I'm like thinking maybe your approach to television is is not all bad. Because between that and the national actual things happening in real life and watching all five parts of O.J. Simpson Made in America... I am at max emotional capacity right now. Yeah, I don't know why you invite that into your life. I really don't. I mean, we can only, we have to do the news, but I just can't add to it. I have been shot for a couple of weeks, just physically, emotionally, every way drained. And the other night I came home and and Chad said, well, let's go down and watch a movie. Um, We have this kind of great setup in our basement and he, you know, awesome picture quality. It's better than being in a theater, really. And so he turns on 10 Cloverfield Lane. Did you see that? No. What's that? Oh, it's like this really creepy thing. And oh, see, now that's funny. I don't do that. I don't do scary, creepy movies. Well, so you, it's sort of like you can't tell. It's you can't tell if this woman has been kidnapped by a crazy person or if this is a person who actually saved her life and has her in this bunker. And it's so intense. And like, like he turns it on, and I said, "You know, I'm not going to like this." And he's like, "No, no, no. It's brilliant. It's just done so well. You're going to really like it. The score is great. Blah blah blah." Forty five minutes in, (laughs) the score is great. (laughs) 45 minutes in, I hit pause and I looked at him and said, do you even love me? Because what is this? And I honestly could not take another minute of it. And I went to bed and I dreamed about it. And I just felt even more on edge the next day. I just can't do it. I don't. I could have watched Top Chef and gone to bed and felt really good. You know, well, I mean, <laughs> that's I think what I'm going to choose is, every time. So I don't watch um, any sort of horror film. I don't watch any kind of um, suspense movies. I mean, I watch... The stuff I watch is intense politically. You know, especially this week. Now I'm about to watch Game of Thrones. There's nothing intense politically except for they're just going to kill everybody probably this week. But I like things that are well done. But I also just like... I like things that are trying to say something. I need you to be telling me something. You know, Mad Men wasn't a... Well, I was filming this. I mean, it's set in the 60s. It was impossible for it not to be political. But, you know, it, it was saying something. And Orange is the New Black is most certainly saying so many things right now. And, you know, what's what's so hard for me about watching this show is it's real. Like, it's not Game of Thrones. There aren't dragons. But there are awful prisons in which, you know, these people are subjected to the inhumane treatment and beatings and rape. And I just, oh, it's so awful. But, you know... I just think they're important conversations, and I think that pop culture has the power to make those conversations in a way no other medium has, and that's why I like, you know, these thing, you know, these programs and as intense as they are, and also OJ Man America, so good but so intense also, but really provides sort of perspective into. I hadn't really thought about this either. Like so many people that don't remember the trial and how well this is going to be like. I mean, this could. What, Watching and understanding the O.J. Simpson trial, I mean, it would it would make you feel like the light switch had been turned on in American culture if you're like 20 and you kind of don't understand why everyone is so mad at each other. If you watch this, you'd be like, oh, th- a lot of things make sense now. 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like no beatings and rape on my television is a pretty firm rule of mine, <laughs> and I'm not probably going to budge from that. I will I'm, also say um, that I've discovered a new podcast that is really good that I think you would like, which is the new Radio Lab spinoff about the Supreme Court. Have you heard about it? Yes, I have. Oh, it's good. I did. They did this whole thing on Baker versus Carr and Frankfurter and Douglas and this. Uh, Poor Supreme Court does that a nervous breakdown. I never heard any of this in law school. Why are they skipping all the drama? Good. I've been thinking about this since you said that you're an input person. I'm just definitively not. Like, mm. I feel overflowing all the time. I think I must be an output kind of person. Like, I I have a lot in Well, there my is, head. like, a processor strength. I have that, too. Like, I get where I'm like, I have to write about it. Or the, and the podcast helps. Like, I have to – that's why I will corner – and have been cornering everyone I know about O.J. Man and Mary. I'm like, have you watched it? Can you talk about it? You want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. <laughs> I got to process it, too. I don't know that that's me either. I'm just a weirdo, I guess. I <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel full up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I reach this point where I think I'm at capacity. I do not want to take in anything else. And I'm out. And I'm also, I think a big thing for me is this is an Enneagram thing. I'm really leaning more towards, there's this Enneagram. I don't know how it works out with the one I'm supposedly am anyway. But it's, the, it's whatever number this is, they say they are against. This number is against. Like, you know, one is a perfectionist, but this one is against. Meaning they just, they're, why do we do it this way? They're questioning. They're always sort of against the way things are and asking and questioning and Wanting to understand, does that work? Does that not work? And that, I mean, I think that's sort of why I take in the information and the pop culture I do, too. Because I just want to be like, but why? Why is it like this? Is this a good way for it to be? Or is this a terrible way for it to be? What does this mean? Because it's like that. Like, that's sort of, that's the stuff I like, too. Except for Game of the Thrones, which is just a fancy soap opera with dragons. I feel like I know a lot of against people in real life. I'll be <laughs> reflecting on that this week. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's true, right? Like, it's a total, when you hear that, you're like, oh, I know some people like that. Yeah, I, it's, that would be helpful if we just could, could wear some t-shirts, just say against, <laughs> like, okay, I get it. I know what you're Here's about. Here's my problem. This, this is probably some um, personality thing all on its own, and maybe this is reflective in my pop culture choices as well, and the fact that I want everyone to talk about them with me. But I am so, like, maybe this is an only child thing. Like, I read all these personality things, and I figure out myself, and I'm like, that's enlightening, and then I move on, and then I never stop to think, like, maybe I should learn about other people. And how they feel about things and how they react to things so as to not make it difficult when I assume they react to things the same way I do. But I like just read my thing. And I'm like, that's industry. Moving on. <laughs> Let me just tell you as a person who spends way too much time trying to figure other people out that that is not a better life. It's okay. not. It's okay, not. I'm I think you should... myself that guilt and move right along. I think this is the definition of Sarah, you do you. <laughs> Go right. along. I'm so good at it. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Fancy Politics. You... You guys, we are going to try so hard to have, like, a lighter episode coming up soon. I mean, maybe we should just do a good news episode. I think it's time. This is a thing that's getting better. This is a thing we really like to see happening. This is actually happening. I don't know. Maybe we should do that. Y'all, send us your ideas. It's time for that. Send us your good news. Yeah. You can do that on Facebook at Pantsuit Politics, Twitter at Pantsuit Politics without an S. You can leave us a voice message. The number for that is on our Facebook and Twitter pages. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. 